Dior Talks. I really want to celebrate the creativity of the women, but all the creativity. It's another way to give voice to the artists that I like. Only in this way you can move in the future and then you have a conversation with a new generation of women. I am so excited to say that this episode of Dior Talks interviews one of the most important artists ever, the phenomenal Tracy Emin. Working in painting, drawing, video and installation to photography, needlework and sculpture, the world-renowned Emin's art is one of disclosure, using her life events as a major influence on her incredibly beautiful, powerful and emotional work. Tracy has also served as a major influence for Maria Grazia Curie while she has been at Dior. Early on in Maria Grazia's creative directorship, she met with Tracy at her studio in London and had a discussion which proved pivotal for advancing Maria Grazia's interest in promoting the work of feminist artists and in understanding how and what fashion could contribute to this conversation. In 2017, Tracy created a neon artwork, Should Love Last, for the 44 Avenue Montaigne pop-up store, where Maria Grazia showed her first collection. Often sexually provocative and highly intense, the immediacy of Tracy's work locates her oeuvre within a tradition of feminist discourse. By reappropriating conventional handicraft techniques often associated with women's work for radical intentions, Emin's work resonates with the feminist tenets of the personal as political. Nominated for a Turner Prize in 1999, represented Britain at the Venice Biennale in 2007, made a CBE in 2013, and a professor of drawing at the Royal Academy of Arts. Tracy Emin has exhibited and captured artgoers from all around the globe. Solo exhibitions include at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, the Leopold Museum in Vienna, MCA Miami, Turner Contemporary in Margate, Hayward Gallery, London and many more. And later this year, we'll see Tracy exhibit alongside the great Edvard Munch at the Royal Academy of Arts, as well as at the Munch Museum in Oslo. My name is Katie Hessel. I am an art historian and curator from London and run the Great Women Artists Instagram account. And today I am so delighted to be in the Spitalfield studio of Tracy Emin, who we are very excitingly recording with today. Thank you so much for having us. It's such an honour to be here, surrounded by your works. I can see paintings, watercolours, drawings, maquettes. It's such an exciting time to see work in progress. Um, I'd just love to start by asking you, since we are surrounded by your painting, which personally is a very kind of emotional experience for me as a, as a viewer and a lifelong viewer of your work, what does painting mean to you? Well, when I was young, to me, painting was the highest form of art. Like, to be a painter was to be a real artist, to be what it really means to be an artist, m more than anything. But I was, like, printmaking. So then I did printmaking, then I did performance, then I did the sewing, then I did this, then I did that. And it's taken me, like, 25 years to get, 30 years to get back to painting again yeah. properly. Yeah. And now that I'm back at painting, I don't ever want to go anywhere else. I just absolutely love it. I hate it. I love it. I scream at it. And if you look now, this painting in front of us, this big white one, that is on Saturday was a really beautiful painting. 
and I just got angry with it and started painting over bits and then just kind of completely lost it and then had to paint over it and then I've spent the last week feeling really low and really depressed about it because I had a really beautiful painting. Yeah. Now it's gone and what I have to remember is the beautiful painting's still there but it's underneath. Yeah. And, and so I think being a painter, you have this dialogue with yourself that's really personal and, they, and you have this kind of like love-hate affair with what you're doing as well. Because mm. what I'm doing isn't contrived or planned or thought out. It's really immediate and it's like an action. It's, it's really guttural. It's like me and it yeah. kind of thing. So that excites me. It turns me on. It's exciting. It's sexy. It's, it's something I didn't think that I would be able to do again. I thought it was something which was part of my youth. I didn't realise that I still had all of that in me still, and that's what makes it exciting. The idea of being 90 and still throwing paint around. And there's a lot of painters now, contemporary painters, who don't throw the paint around. What they do is plan, sort out, manage, you know, it, it's not it's not action painting. Yeah. Whereas with me, there's a lot of action involved. So it's not always easy to paint because sometimes I'm just really tired yeah. or, or I just don't feel like throwing my hands around and arms around or being really, you know, physical. And it is a real, a real physical thing. But it's something afterwards that when you look at it, it's perhaps what means most to you rather than other mediums? It's got nothing to do with the outside world. It's completely internal. It's to do with me and my response to what I'm doing. It's my conversation, my dialogue. It has nothing to do with a third party. It's got nothing to do with an audience. It's got to do with how I feel when I, as I'm making it, as I respond to it. Yeah. And so when you are making sculptures or maquettes or needlework or watercolour or drawing, is there a different sensation to these yeah, different... Yeah, well, I haven't done any needlework now for about four years. Yeah. I just packed it all up, packed all my fabrics up, everything up, and just thought, well, I'll revisit this one day in, in the future. And, um, and I think the sewing thing... I was tempted to do some sewing in France a few months ago because I was making some curtains. And I thought, hmm, this sewing feels so nice. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing about sewing, it's meditative. Yeah. And it's um, meditative, it's soothing... Um, it keeps you out of trouble, whereas painting is the absolute opposite, the absolute antithesis to that. Painting's sexy, mm. painting's charged up, paint, painting has this emotional for us, whereas the sewing is you sit there calm and you're sitting, stitching, sewing. What I might be sewing may be full of angst and, you know, especially the writing and everything, but it's not, it calms me. And I think when I was younger... I needed to be kept calm. Yeah. Now that I'm older, I need to be woken up and kept wild. Yeah. Painting's almost kind of this overpowering sensation in a way. Yeah, it's like splitting the atom. It's like that I'm actually afraid before... And, and it's really funny because it's like I've realised that I really like painting on a full moon. Yeah. And it's kind of like some sort of like theatrical kind of banshee, you yeah. know, the way I, the way I, and I finish at like four in the morning, I sleep a little bit, I get up at seven, I carry on and it's this sort of like mad, definitely like a mad, especially when I'm painting in France because I'm in, in, in this sort of valley next to this lake and this, all these hills and, and stones and this kind of insane landscape and I'm just part of that. Yeah. There's wolves out there and there's foxes out there yeah. and deers and snakes and, 
and it's just all so much part of nature. It yeah. isn't. It isn't about making a painting to go in a gallery to go on a wall for someone to paint to buy. Yeah, it's about something which is the complete opposite to that. Yeah, and so that's why I'm looking forward to being out of London much more and working because I'd rather get up in the morning, take long walk by the sea and get blown around by the wind and then walk back into my studio and paint. I need uh, something which feels really real to me. Mm. And the, if, if you really love, like I really love nature, being part of that, mm. and I realise the closest I can get to that is by the art, is by the painting, is by me as an extension of something real. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned you've got a studio in Margaret. It's also where you grew up. I mean, this place must have obviously so much sentimentality for your work throughout your whole career as well. I mean, how is it now working in Margate? Well, this is the truth. I just go down there. I haven't started working there yet. I have all the canvases. I have everything (laughs) ready. And I'm like a frightened rabbit because it's so heavy for me. It's got so much emotional stuff, so much dark stuff as well, that I just sort of think, can I really work here? Can I really do this? What's going to happen? And that is so exciting. It's like Byron said, I'm on the edge of a precipice but it's a wonderful view and it's like that it's like jumping off a cliff it's like well will I fly or will I don't what's going to happen to me yeah and so it's really exciting at the moment I'm building it or I'm almost finished and it's taken me like three years to build the whole thing and it's and it's just it's beautiful as well and I'm really happy about it and the same I'm going to close up this studio okay and not have a studio a proper studio in London I just don't want I just don't want it anymore. I want to move on. How exciting. I'm, I'm so excited to see what comes out of that work as well. Yeah, it will be really different because I grew up there. Yeah. And if you think a, a lot of my work is about evoking memories exactly. and re- reassessing those memories, reevaluating them, imagine if I'm in the place where the memories were made. Kind of to go back to your childhood in Margate, um, you were born in 1963, of course, and what was that place like for you as a, as a child? Well, Mar- Margate's strange. First of all, M- Margate was like um, incredibly, it had this sort of like, sort of sexy, sort of okie dokie, sort of okie dokie, yeah. sort of glamour <laughs> to it as yeah. well. And it had um, a lot of um, groups of people would visit Margate mods, rockers, hell's angels, teddy boys, punks, soul boys. You know, it was always a place where groups of people that were cutting edge would come mm. and visit and so I grew up with that kind of with a kind of edge yeah. to things so it was always really exciting it was like the excitement came to us and Margate was architecturally it's still really fantastic mm. and, and, and good and interesting but um, I had a very unhappy childhood in a very happy place yeah. if that makes sense yeah and then I'm interested about your schooling as well, because I know that you had teachers who were obviously inspirational. Was, uh, you know, when you were younger, did you think about, oh, I'll be an artist or I'll, I'll be this? Or I guess, how did art kind of come into your life and how did you realise that you were able to pursue this career? Well, I, I um, first of all, I left school at 13. Yeah. Then by law, I had to go back when I was 15. I went back when I was 15 for two months. Then I packed my bag and moved to London. I was still 15 and I lived in all different places, slept on people's floors, lived in squats. 
I lived, I stayed at a very famous school in Warren Street. <laughs> that actually had a lot of really cool people, and those cool people all went to either St Martin's or Royal College of Art. They did fashion or they did painting or sculpture. And this was quite inspirational for me because I thought, wow, what's the difference between them and me? I was really young. I was yeah. only like 16 or wow. 15. And I thought, you know, they've all got an education. I want an education yeah. and I want to do art. I want to do something creative. And at school, when I'd gone back when I was 15, all I'd done was art because mm. I'd m- m- mucked up on... I didn't have any O-levels yeah. or anything. When I was, went back to Margate, I was homeless and lived in DHS bed and breakfast and I didn't have anywhere to live. And with, like, with social services, I had to go to like education place, job centres yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. And they basically said that I could get a job washing up or chambermaiding or in a factory. That, that, that was it, because I didn't have any O-levels or A-levels. And I didn't believe them. And so I applied for art school without any qualifications and I got in but I couldn't go because I didn't have the qualifications so then I ended up going to um Sir John Cass yeah part-time and then after that I got into my degree but I got into my degree without A-levels or O-levels or anything because in those days they would accept one person in a hundred without the qualifications if you came from kind of like a diverse kind of extreme background and I fitted that criteria. Wow, that's incredible then to have that opportunity. So going back to, I think probably I've, I've heard this amazing story that when you were at Maidstone School of Art, you um, were part of the Corridor series of exhibitions and I'm really intrigued to know about the work that you were making, you know, early on when you were kind of in your early 20s or late teens. So when, when at, Maid, <laughs> at Maidstone you had to do, Maidstone was brilliant. Yeah. So in the first year you had to do a corridor show, yeah. in the second year you had to give a seminar and in the third year you had to give a lecture and and like for example in the third year with the lecture the whole art school could turn oh up. Oh gosh, wow. Yeah. That's daunting. Yeah, yeah. And, and, the, and the seminar as well, you had to give a seminar on your work. And then in the first year, you had to do corridor shows. Yeah. So you put your work up in the corridor and you stood there. Mm. And people could come and say to you, what's this about? And you tell them and you talk about it and, and discuss it. When I did my corridor show, the feminists yeah. come and tore my book down. <laughs> and I was told that... Um, I couldn't have my work up on the walls because it, uh, it was too offensive. What was it? It was, oh, God, pictures of self-portraits of me sitting in front of a mirror, half naked or naked, drinking a pot of tea. Why do you think the feminists... I mean, the word feminist is interesting. Why do you think these women were against it? I think it's because I had a vagina in the pictures. <laughs> Whereas for years, men had been putting vaginas and tits and all kinds of things into pictures. And here I was, a woman, taking control of my own body and doing yeah. it. And it was, wasn't acceptable. It wasn't, wasn't on. But saying that, Maidstone was so political. It was yeah. incredible. We weren't allowed to eat Kit Kats. <laughs> you, there's new, certain newspapers that were not allowed in the college. There was... Um, Oh, m- many rules, and yeah. it was everything was taught with a Marxist doctrine as well. It wow. was incredibly. Left-wing. What year was this? No, Nineteen eighty-three. Okay. And and so instead of having a, a some say like you know a, a lecture on Picasso's Blue Period, we had the miners come in and give a lecture on how art can relate to what they were going through wow. being as miners. We had Sinn Fein come in, and we had the women from Greenham Common come in. 
And, Incredible. And, and that was really radical and very, very extreme back in those days. Yeah. And with the Sinn Féin, now Sinn Féin is a political party, but then we couldn't have... Um, they couldn't come in during college hours. They had to come in after the lecture was postponed till five in the evening. Wow. And it was packed. Everyone was there. Yeah. Because we, we understood that this was part of history. This was... And also... These people weren't allowed to speak on television. They weren't allowed to have a voice at that time. So it was interesting to hear what they had to say and what their voices was like. Whether or not you agreed or disagreed, it was part of history. Yeah. And um, the Green and, women from Green and Common, I mean, that was amazing. Um, and the miners, you know, what was interesting about the miners is that there were a lot of mining villages around Kent. Yeah. Which are actually quite scary at times. <laughs> and here were, here were the miners, you know, joining yeah. forces with the Fay art students, <laughs> you know. But, but there was... And, the, and the, what the miners said at that time was absolutely right. The miners said, you'll be next. And they were right. Maidstone College of Art was next because yeah. it was closed down. Wow. But it doesn't surprise me. It was like a hotbed of, like, political activism, you know. And it was just an art school, nothing else. 350 art wow. students in the middle of a park with giant oak trees and millions of squirrels. And it was a very, very happy place. And I learned a lot there. But I think what's so interesting is the fact that you're learning about life experience, not, you know, studying from this certain classical work or certain painting in the National Gallery, you're actually talking to people about life and what they're going through. Well, one thing going to Maidstone is that a lot of people who went there left with a lot of confidence yeah. as well, and they felt um, empowered by their experience there, which, which was important. So you'd think that maybe going to Slade and being part of, um, you know, London University or something would make you be more energised, but actually Maidstone was pretty good considering we were in Kent and we were just an art school, nothing, yeah. art college, nothing else. So at that time, you were making these self-portraits. Were you mainly working in painting at that time? And were you, even though the feminists so you know tore down this work, which is kind of abysmal, um, did you did you keep making that kind of work? Yeah, I, I did. Well, actually, then I think by the third year, by the third year, I started painting like quite sexual landscapes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've always done that work. I do it now. Yeah. It's like, it's what I do. It's about being a woman. It's about how I feel. And and I did a whole, back in the 90s, I did a whole thing, uh, The Life Model Goes Mad, where I painted myself naked in a room yeah. and in, in Sweden. And um, there's a series of photographs from that of me naked in this room painting. Yeah. And... And it's good because it's like ownership. It's me. Yeah. It's like I owned that. I took over me. No one else was painting mm. me. I was painting me. And it was kind of important. When I was younger, everything was about the picture and the subject matter. Yeah. But now that I'm older, it's about the action and the conviction of what I do. And that's that's what I was saying to you. I wish I knew when I was younger, I, see, I yeah. wish I knew, knew things, the, the stuff that I know now. Mm. Um, I didn't understand when I was younger. I loved art, but I didn't understand the power of art and its true conviction. I didn't understand the spiritual... I understood spirituality, and but I didn't understand the power of it within yeah. the art. I saw them as separate things. Mm. And now that I'm older, I see all the things that come together to make the experience of art, like, really... Um, 
like some kind of power of ascension or something of rising and understanding something which is otherworldly. And like you were saying, you know, you have been painting your life experiences your entire life. I'm interested as well to kind of go back to this idea, kind of what I was talking about earlier with the feminists tearing down this, these works. I'm wondering about the acceptance that you had when you were younger as women. Obviously now you are kind of have this global career, which is incredible. And there are so many people in the world who know about your work. But I'm wondering when you were starting out as a young woman in London, in England, how did people react to this work? I still think I have a lot of trouble now. So I don't think I'm accepted. I don't think I'm holy establishment or anything like that. I think that I'm still not taken as seriously as I should be. And it makes me quite angry sometimes. So interesting to hear that. I don't know, I guess, having seen your exhibition of Fortnight of Tears at White Cube last week, you know, it's basically the most crowded exhibition I've ever been in. And <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, you know, I think something like 88,000 people went to that show. Yeah. In, in a commercial gallery, that's a lot. Yeah. In just a few weeks, by the way, not like yeah. months and months. But a lot of those 88,000 people were young people under the age of 20. Yeah. Which is a great thing. I just hope some of those young people, as time goes on, get into a position of being museum curators, directors or whatever, you know, and they can change things for yeah. people. Because I think now the art world in the last three years has changed so much and so fast, really, really quickly. It's brought in a lot of people before that weren't taken seriously, that weren't viewed, that weren't accepted. And it's opened up lots of it's, lots of opportunities, visionary. It's, it's good. It's good that it's all the doors, all the doors and all the walls have been smashed down yeah. and lots more is coming in. And I'm really pleased about that. I'm really happy about that. But for some reason, I think I'm probably considered to be in the old, old guard in the old school so in a way as happy as I am for it, it I don't feel included in that and also my age I think when you get to a certain age as well there's an ambition that you lose yeah because you just don't care anymore you Do just you don't care? care no you can't care because you have to care about what you're doing you've yeah. got time to care about the ambition part yeah because that either happens or it doesn't happen and you're too old to be running after ambition yeah you have to have you have you've got enough trouble running after the work yeah it's the work that's really important not not the ambition the mm. ambition is is gone it's got it went with the youth it went with the the young part but I think what's interesting about your work and me just as a 26 year old woman or 25 year old woman last year when I went to go and see it is how I guess I've, I've grown up with your work my entire life um, and I've you know seen it in the early noughties, I've seen it now. And the way that it speaks to me now is so much more, in a way, truthful. It feels so much more intense and emotional because, you know, I've had those experiences. My friends have had those experiences. We've gone through these experiences together. Well, this is interesting. So 20 years ago, you know, if you, if you read stuff about me from 20 years ago or whatever, you know, a lot of people are complaining about me saying that I was complaining, saying that I was moaning, yeah. saying that I was screaming, oh, there she goes again, bloody Tracy Emig, yeah. complaining about abortion or rape or whatever. Yeah. I wasn't complaining <laughs> about abortion or rape. 
I was making a strong point about it as a young woman that had gone through these things, yeah. experienced these things, and how bad they were mm. for me, or, or, or how, you know, how unfair or unjust or or how being being raped and you and no one takes you seriously on it or no one believes you or you can't tell someone or it's just considered to be nothing and yeah. ineffectual. Well, now people don't think that. Now people don't think I was moaning and whining. Now, let dare people say that when I talk about being raped at 13 that I'm moaning about it. Of course I'm not moaning. I'm, I'm making work and I'm making art and I'm stating these facts that these things happen to women and quite often there is no support out there. Yeah. There is nothing. And I'm telling you, 20 years ago, there was nothing. It was a, a wilderness. So when I talked about it, people didn't take me seriously. People didn't want to take me seriously because they were, if they did, then they, were ashamed. they, were, they felt ashamed. But did women not come up to you and say, I've had those experiences and yeah, they but, resonate with me? Yes, but, but secretly, quietly. Oh, God. No, I think it's so interesting how this acceptance, I guess it's, it's probably because of the Me Too movement as well, that people are now taking this so much more seriously. I mean, do you think that people are now looking back at those earlier works and seeing them in a different way because it's a subject that has been taken seriously and needs to be taken seriously more? Well, it's kind of interesting. There's quite a lot of shows, like painting shows or different things, and they, they're, they're um, curated with a political point yeah. of view. And then people say, oh, I'd love to put you in the show, Tracy, but your work's not political. So I go, because <laughs> your work's so personal. And I go, right, okay, fine. So it's kind of interesting what people's perspectives yeah. are now on what is personal, what is political, what is emotional. My work's very emotional. I let them have that, but I wouldn't say I would say that there's. I have a political stance to what I do simply because I'm doing it. Yeah, and I have to ask you about. Uh, it was 2010 that you collaborated with the great Louise Bourgeois. I mean, her work as well has that... I mean, she wasn't recognised until right at the end of her life and looking back at her oeuvre now, she was really addressing these subjects as well, addressing a very personal subject, what it was like to be a woman. The thing about Louise, though, she's really brainy, academically really smart. Louise could have been an astronaut, yeah. you know? She could have done anything. She could have been a scientist, an astronaut. I can't. I could only ever do art. <laughs> that, that would be it. Um, you know, or maybe something less credible, I don't know. And um, Louise, when I collaborated with Louise, it was from 2008, and it took me two years to finish the collaboration. So what was it? So she created these drawings and then you yeah, drew and then over I them? Yeah, I drew over the top, wow. yeah. So, and, she, and she got them just about a few weeks before she died, and she really liked them, which was good. But Louise is a great role model, because she died so old and she carried on working right up to the last moment. So that, that's what it's about, you know. And after her husband died, she, got, she removed all his books and, and all their library and she just turned her whole house into a studio. Wow. No time for mourning. Yeah. So... Yeah. And what was it like when you first saw her work? Did you feel... Because this is also an interesting thing that I have with your work. You know, your work is so specific. It's not really like anyone else's. It has that truth to it. And I guess 
the only person who I really see in a similar way is Louise Bourgeois. Did you find, or maybe even someone like Frida Kahlo, you know, painting themselves in pain truthfully, but also love, desire, everything kind of what wrapped up in that? But there's a lot of people that have done that. Yeah. They're men. Lots. You've got Edvard Munch, you've got Van Gogh. What do you think it means that for these women? Because I guess, like you're Even saying, Sheila. yeah, but there's so many less of them. Yeah, there's not that many. There's not that many women who make art anyway. There's far less women that make art, or far less women who are appreciated for making art, or far less women that would manage to make a success of art. There's an um, Instagram site called Bow Down. Yeah. And it's really brilliant. On it every day, it's some a woman's birthday who's an artist. Yeah. And it's fascinating. It's really brilliant because a lot of these women, they just disappeared. They just disappeared from history. And 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 a lot of women have to look after children. A lot of women were financially they couldn't they couldn't exist making art. Still, it's hard. How do you think we can change the landscape of there being more artists that that are women? There there are lots more. Yeah. But, but whether or not women can sustain being an artist is a different situation. And maybe the acceptance as well, because like you said, you know, you were given this confidence when you were younger and have obviously made this incredible career out of it, but perhaps do you think women haven't been given the confidence in the right way? Um, no, I think a lot more women now, but there's a lot of women in my generation that didn't have children, yeah. for example. And also I just think a lot of men still very sexist yeah misogynistic and do you think it's about taking women's work seriously as well yeah I still think in the art world actually it's really changing a lot because there's so many more women curators so many more women directors everything so I think things are changing mm. but and they are changing faster than I expected but it's still quite slow you know and I think it was nearly four years ago that Maria Grazia came to your studio here and I know that from speaking to her personally this conversation was you know sparked these four years of working with feminist feminist artists uh you know putting on these incredible sets for artists to create you know unrealized artworks from the 70s like judy chicago i'm interested to know a bit more about this discussion that you had with her and how you how you how how it was for you what was your experience well my mum had just died yeah and um i was quite blown away actually because um I was quite flattered <laughs> and, and really surprised and taken aback. It was nice. It was a nice thing. It was a nice thing to be congratulated on what I'd done and be appreciated, and especially from someone so high up within the fashion world, to have a mutual appreciation. It, it was a really nice, good thing. And I also really like... We had to sort of not... We had a kind of little bit of an... Not an argument, but like a discussion about Dior... Because um, I, I always say Dior doesn't make clothes for women like me. Yeah. Now it does. <laughs> so it's good. <laughs> so you think that, and, and, and I guess, have you been watching from afar what she's been doing with yeah. these artists? And yeah, how does that I've make been, you feel? I've also been watching all the collections as well. I've yeah. Been, yeah, taking an interest. I haven't been to any shows because I don't, I don't, I haven't been to any fashion shows for a long time. <laughs> I find it too stressful, the whole thing. Um but, um, yeah, she's, uh, she's been working with artists doing lots of projects. She's, what, when she came here and told me what she was going to do, she's actually been doing it, and that's quite a rare thing. And Yeah. So I was very pleased. Yeah. And how does it feel, kind of like this woman who, you know, she's the first female creative director of Dior, and she's giving women this platform, 
like, you know, having, I guess, what Dior can give people is this incredible platform and the resources to create that. And how, how does it feel to see those women celebrated for their work? Dior now are doing other things as well in terms of, like, charity, everything. There's a, there's a lot more going on than just beautiful clothes for incredibly wealthy women. And, and I like the way that um, Maria Gracias actually used the power... Yeah, and the vehicle of Dior to do to do good things—that's important. It's, it's never been done before. And you think it's never really been done in fashion before, for example? No, I know people like Vivian Westwood. Yeah, really, you know, hardcore mm. Vivian and um, uh, Agnes Bay. She's she's pretty good with things she does. But, but what I'm talking about with the Dior thing. We're talking about the highest, highest echelons of fashion here. Yeah. Doesn't need to do it, but she's doing it, and that's a really good thing. And bringing it to the world stage as well. Yeah. As this is uh, all the Dior podcasts, mm-hmm. we always ask, um, who is your feminist hero? Daphne du Maurier. Why? Because um, I think she's really underestimated as a writer in terms of intellect. I think her books are incredible, and she really expresses what it's like to be a woman from every angle. And her books are just so enlightening. And I think My Cousin Rachel is probably one of the most cruelest books I've ever read in my life, where I screamed all the way through it. And I think I think Daphne du Maurier, within herself, what she stood for, her writing, everything, how she lived, she's fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you.